Step into our confessional. Confess all. We won't tell anyone. Just the entire nation. From Greatest Hits Radio, Simon Mayo's Confessions. Come in and take a pew. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> What's, what's no, no, no. I'm not sure that's how we're going to start, is it? Come really? in and take a pew, oh. and now that you're here, we can oh. finally begin. Hello. Oh. It's sort of uh, somewhere between the verger and... Definitely a bit of Derek Nemo in there, yeah. Bertrand yep. Russell. Bertrand <laughs> Russell. So, doesn't that just tell us the chasm between you and me? I said Derek Nimmo. You say Bertrand Russell. Wow. Oh, my. What does Bertrand Russell sound like? I don't even know. Maybe he sounds like this. Yes. Anyway, it's another Confessional Podcast. Thank you very much indeed. We are your friends at Greatest Hits Radio. Just uh, reading about myself. Oh, really? Mm. What's this? It's the Radio Times. The Radio oh. Times? Page wow. 108. Uh, Holly's mum's already bought a copy. Oh, yes, yep. She's Waitrose, very, she's very, there. Very excited. Obviously, Good. you can't buy it anywhere else. Only no. buy it in Waitrose. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, but she was afraid she was getting the wrong copy, wasn't she? She was she, a bit worried, yeah. Convincing. Mm. It's definitely in there. Holly's mentioned on page 100. Brilliant. Love You're it. there as well, Matt. Am I? Yes. Am I really? So you've got the morals Good. of sewer rat. Correct. That is I. Any other press we've had? We oh, should? yes. Uh, so this is in, uh, where are we? TV Guide. Is it t- Total TV Guide. And uh, yes, big full page spread with you and a hamster. Uh, talking right. about uh, the enduring appeal of Simon Mayo's tell-all format uh, confessions, uh, in which uh, I-, I am referred to as Matt Williamson. Uh, uh, not me! <laughs> not me, they probably sunshine. Also, when they wrote Holly Carnegie, they probably pronounced it Carnegie. Yes, mm. yes. You just no, said that they got that wrong. wrong. Not on, mm-hmm. not on. Obviously, given the press interest... Uh, the good word of this podcast is travelling far and wide across time and distance. So true, and yeah. And space. And space. This week, uh, visiting the nuns' retreat on the beautiful island of Jersey for our tale from the crypt. You probably think this confession is about you. Cliff takes us back to Toxteth in the 1960s with his story, Sing Us a Song, You're the Piano Man. Hillwalker's Tale, Running Up That Hill... You get another chance to hear that. We pay a quick visit to the apothecary in 90s New England. That's the 1990s New England. For Philippa's confession, it's all happening at the zoo. But first up, we return to the spring of 1987, a time of febrile debate and deep political division. Different times. Well, this is David's tale. Here comes the rain again. Simon Mayo's confessions. We won't tell anyone. What? Oh, sorry, sorry. I mean, we will tell everyone. But of Al Benoni here comes from Davy Dave, uh, also called David. Father Simon in the Venerable Forum of Forgiveness. I've wanted to confess to a minor misdemeanor, we'll be the judge of that, for many years, but for reasons that will become obvious shortly, I felt I might not get a fair hearing with your previous employers. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. To start, right. Was, to start with, I was thinking he meant Worthing Borough Council, <laughs> but I realised that he's moved on a bit from that. It's the spring of 1987, and I was in my final year at a well-known university in the southwest of England. Oh, says, before Matt asks, I was studying the beautiful and occasionally useful science of mathematics. Oh, my yes. girlfriend at the time was, however, studying sociology in the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences. Pause for Matt to pass judgment. No, I heard by far bit from me. What, what did you study? Uh, French and Spanish. There you go. Yeah. Not much better. No. 
by which I mean it's a very both <laughs> very useful, all very very all very, very, very useful yes. subjects. Well done. Your older listeners will remember that in the spring of '87, the country was gripped by general election fever. Mm. The overall outcome was by no means certain, and pundits reckoned the result could rest on the voting intentions of a few key marginals, one of which was our city. A well-known broadcaster decided to run a special edition of their well-known current affairs program featuring four of these marginals. As part of the research for the program, they needed their own opinion polls taken in the constituencies and for some reason approached university staff on the sociology course to see if any of the students wanted to earn a small reward for conducting some interviews with the general public. Being a typically poor student, my girlfriend volunteered and was allocated a precise location in town for the survey which needed 50 responses and had to be done on a specific Wednesday afternoon between 2 and 4. No alterations were possible. Come the appointed time, she trudged off down the hill into town clipboard, pen and 50 crisp new interview sheets in hand ready to capture details of the occupations and voting intentions of unsuspecting passers-by. And then the heavens opened, dramatically, biblical it was, all afternoon, and it did not stop. She returned a couple of hours after, looking absolutely soaked through, cold, shivering, and utterly rejected, and dejected, in fact. Due to the weather, and that her allocated location was a small shopping precinct on early closing day, different times ask your parents yeah. this is when Holly you'll be surprised <laughs> when shops decided to close early on particular days right often on Wednesdays mm-hmm. when there was no point being anywhere near a shop the grand total of people she'd managed to persuade to stop and be interviewed in the downpour was three well Father Simon what to do my maths told me that the opinion poll would be useless if there weren't enough responses and well the reward would be nice and she had tried hard it wasn't her fault about the weather or the appointed location and the timing couldn't have been worse there was only one solution we were going to have to make the whole thing up I mean how hard could it be and who would ever know the interview forms were already in a pretty bad state having been out in the rain for two hours so it wouldn't be obvious that they hadn't gone through the expected wear and tear of a properly conducted survey and making up the data should be a doddle So after drying off, warming up and putting the kettle on, we set to work. We invented nurses and lawyers, plumbers, shop workers, secretaries, students, care workers, housewives, pensioners, you name it. The variety of people who'd allegedly been in the shopping precinct that afternoon was quite remarkable. For each one, we made a reasonable guess at their stereotypical voting intentions, then lobbed in a few left-field responses to throw anyone with suspicions (laughs) off the scent. Finally, having... Seen a few opinion polls on the telly over the preceding days. We made sure that the overall numbers were close enough to the national polls Mm. not to seem unrealistic. Job done, the results were handed in next morning and we eagerly awaited the TV broadcast on the following Monday evening at 8 o'clock. I wonder what that could be. Sure enough, there it was on the screen. Whilst a few million people were watching, taking in the numbers, the graphs and the detailed analysis, the swingometer... I'll tell you later on. (laughs) And the like, and then thinking what it meant for the future of the country, two students in a small room on a remote campus in the West Country knew that at least part of this was a total fabrication. In my defence, our 47 made-up responses probably wouldn't have made too much of a difference to the overall survey numbers, but, however, I do seek forgiveness waits for the crescendo. 
from everyone else in the country, just in case we may have played a small part in influencing floating voters and therefore the overall result on polling day. You could see this as an attack on democracy, but maybe not. I lay myself humbly at your feet and await the verdict. Given Sister Holly's recent comment about lying is never the answer, I fear little sympathy in that department. (laughs) However, given Brother Matt's recent astute observation that without lying, this feature doesn't exist. (laughs) That is true. I feel a bit more hopeful in that direction. I mean, most people feel hopeful when it comes to Matt and forgiveness Mm. because he would have to be super bad uh, for it to go the wrong way. But anyway, uh, Davey Davies, now this is an important thing. Panoramas, oh no, could it be any show? Could it be anything. Uh, It's an important programme. This is part of the uh, protected and much revered, much loved democratic process. And Davey Dave and his girlfriend have been up to no good, Sister Holly. Well, attack on democracy is quite right, really. Uh, Falsifying all of these findings and then sending them off to, you know, a a very important programme that millions of people watched. Which you've never heard of. Which I've never heard of. Uh, You know, is is really quite bad. Uh, You know, that could have affected the way things voted, perhaps, in 1987. And that was all down to you. What do you remember of the 1987? Uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. And so therefore? So therefore, not forgiving at all. uh, Brother Matthew. Right, is it just me that they're asking you to do a survey of 50 people in two hours? I mean, even if those streets were teeming with people, that's one every two minutes or just over. And and they've asked you to do it on early closing day, on a Wednesday. Uh, How how unlike that particular political department to be completely out of touch with the real people. Um, So for that reason... Oh, I think we're tiptoeing into I think I'm going to forgive. Simon Mayo's Confessions. So what went on between you and the political journalist at Milner? Well, it's more, it's more the political unit deciding that it would be a good idea to do a survey when there's nobody about, because they did, had no clue that it was early closing on a Wednesday. Also, having done sort of the radio equivalent of those things, which are Vox Pops, where you have to stop people in the street and ask them the, they're always the, useless. They're always awful to do. Let's, um, let, let, let's do now for, uh, for for radio training purposes. Here is a vox pop, and we haven't rehearsed this. I'll be one voice, you be another voice, Holly, you can be another voice. That is just is going to be useful for any subject. At all. Yes. So it could be, what do you think of the new royal baby? What mm. do you think of this person landing on the moon? Whatever. Okay. So, uh-huh. I'll, so we'll go around. Okay. So, well, I'm I'm outraged, really. I'm I'm really not in favour. I think it's an amazing idea. It's incredible. I think it's a disgrace. I think you can use that. I'll expect yes. to hear that mm. used yeah. uh, many yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. But you haven't answered the question, what did Milbank do to you? Oh, they were <laughs> All... constantly double-booking guests. That's what they were doing. And taking up studio space and then overrunning with their two ways. It's a little very, very niche on the, on the radio side of things. But, oh, my goodness, did they take themselves too seriously. OK, good. Well, I'm glad we sorted that out. Anyway, a mixed verdict uh, from the people on this one. Jerry says, forgiven. I'm with Brother Matt on this one. Why were they given so little time to do it? No, 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 says Drix. Absolutely not forgiven. Do you have any idea how hard it is to complete research surveys? Mm. Having worked in market research for many years, I know how false info can skew an outcome. But Sir in Lewisham says, yes, forgiven. Despite the fact I used to work for a well-known market research company, did it really make any difference on this occasion? Of course it didn't. And just to complete uh, Holly's education on this, the 1987 general election was won by the Conservative Party. Margaret Thatcher mm-hmm. had a majority mm-hmm. of 102. Third successive one, I think, hadn't been done since the Earl of Liverpool in the 1820s. Wow, good nice. knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, 
just to complete. That is good knowledge. Thank you, thank yes. you very much indeed. I'll quiz you on it a little bit later. <laughs> Parish Notice Board, uh, various stuff that you've sent, emails and tweets and reviews and that kind of stuff, confessions at greatesthitsradio.co.uk. And, of course, we want your reviews. So here are some from uh, last week's service. As ever, we are only interested in five-star reviews. So, five stars, says Paul Parrott. I would give more. Uh, so pleased this is back and I've discovered it again. I've been a Confessions fan since 1988. Wow. Yes. Yes, I am that old. I'll have a stale Ken Bruce biscuit, please. I think we only started them in 1989. Well, so, you know, that's doing, pretty doing good. well, Mr. Parrot. Uh, Sazzle31 says five stars. Secret spilled, giggles guaranteed. Finally, Confessions is back to bless our ears with outrageous listener tales who are begging for repentance. I've missed Matt's hilarious reasons for absolution, especially precarious for art students. Quite right. Uh, Holly's moral compass, and of course, Simon's excellent accents, all of which Thank are the highlight of podcast world. The pod's return is like sunshine after a stormy hiatus. Pure auditory joy. Uh, and Alex Charman, five stars, says thank you Reverend Simon, Brother Matt and Sister Holly. So very happy this witty, funny and hilarious podcast has returned. Keep up the excellent work. Your loyal congregation awaits each new episode. And of course, if you're going to give us a five star review and praise us to the skies, then we may read you out in next week's podcast. But only if it's five stars. Uh, Sarah Jones in Cleethorpes just wanted to send a message to say how much I enjoy the Confessions podcast. I'm a fairly new listener to Confessions. I listened to the first one whilst walking to work and I was laughing out loud, so now I listen to them whilst doing my housework. It's less embarrassing. Keep up the good work. I look forward to hearing some more. Regards, Sarah Jones from Cleethorpes. Uh, Carolyn says, Dear Simon and the crew, Hello. in the days when you were working elsewhere, I used to listen to your podcast on my homewards drive from work. I'm so, so pleased that Poncats, Poncasts? podcasts are available Where did again. That come from? Podcasts, yes. I'm so, so pleased that podcasts are available again because you now have them on too late for me to listen to. We have them on at the same time, Carolyn. It's 5.40, it's always been 5.45, other place and here. Yes. Uh, thank you so much, Simon. So, so funny, says Carolyn. And uh, Dave really enjoys listening to the podcast down the pub loud and clear, he says. Uh, he actually featured in your very first confessions back in 1989, sending lots of love from Moulton, North Yorkshire. Ray, wow. Ray says, I've rated you five stars. Could I please have some tat to annoy my wife uh, with as she groaned when I happily announced the return of the podcast? Why would anyone groan? Yeah. yeah. Ray, come on. It's please great. don't stop my old ones wearing out. Whatever that don't is. stop my old ones wearing out. What does that mean, Ray? <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Can we say... I'm not sure Ray I, deserves some tat, Ray's, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Quick mentions to Ben Hale, Kim Reynolds... David Morgans, Muttley, Philip Boyd and Tracy Fry, who are amongst those who tweeted the secret phrase uh, from last week's podcast, which was, of course, Vanessa Feltz. Vanessa Feltz. 49. Oh, dear, dear. Keep listening uh, through to the end of this podcast to pick up this week's secret code phrase, which probably hasn't even... Uh, occurred yet. So Not we, yet. We have no idea will. what it's going to be. Oh, yeah. uh, keep everything coming. Keep all the messages coming. Uh, anything you think we'd be interested to see, confessions at greatesthitsradio.co.uk. <laughs> Quick trawl through the gutter. Uh, obviously, this is the not for broadcast stuff, which Holly won't let me anywhere near. No. Uh, Andy, who was seeking forgiveness on his grandmother's behalf for an incident at Plymouth train station many years ago. In a waiting room full of passengers, his grandmother stood at the window and drew everyone's attention to a 
lovely white pigeon, possibly a dove, <laughs> on the railway track. Families and children leapt to their feet to peer at the bird. There was nothing else going on back then. Just as a train rolled in and helped the bird to its final destination. Passengers screamed, children cried, and Grand said, oh, that shouldn't have happened. The 12.02 is normally late. (laughs) Oh, well done. Timing from Grandma. Thank you. Grandma Terry Jones. Yes, indeed. Uh, And Jen sent this in. I mean, this this is the perfect example of something which is never going to get on. Okay, go on. Jen, who whilst working as a holiday rep on the Greek island of Corfu, found herself struggling with an upset stomach. One morning, after an hour in the bathroom, she headed downstairs to host the welcome meeting for the new arrivals. But passing the hotel pool, she felt more movement. Oh, no. Jen, believing she was over the worst of it, released what she thought would be a little wind. But it wasn't. Uh, Short on time and not wanting to let the new guest down, she grabbed a towel and some swim shorts from one of the sun loungers and dived into the changing area. At least she didn't dive into the pool. No, I thought of that, yeah, go on. Uh, Ten minutes later, she was stood at the front of the function room hosting the welcome meeting when one of the new guests said... I've got a pair of shorts like that. Oh, no. <laughs> Why wouldn't that get on? That stuff seems fine to well, me. I think that we could have done that, but maybe there was a little bit too much poo. Okay. Mm. I mean, you um, can get away with a little bit of poo. Little, we had a poo in the bush. Yes, just we a, did. Just we last did. week. I mean, it happens to us all, doesn't it? I well, don't think Holly. it does. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Don't never Holly happens, Holly. No. Holly actually never goes to the toilet. <laughs> no, no. That is true. Yes. Uh, so that apparently is biologically... Uh, <laughs> Yes, the queen. The queen mother was said never to go to the loo. She just no. wasn't one of the things that she did. Right. Never complain, never explain, never go to the loo. Uh, back to the confessions that finally did make the cut. This is Philippa's confession. It's all happening at the zoo. Simon Mayo's confessions. Confess all. We won't tell anyone. To the faithful of the forgiveness groove, says Philippa... Way back in the glory days of big hair, Wilson Phillips and tapered jeans tucked inside socks, I was living my best life in a rural area of New England, about three hours north of New York City. My town was small, everyone knew everyone else, and no one locked their house or car doors. In fact, you would regularly see cars left idling outside while people ran into the apothecary or package store. Yes, it was the 90s, but in a small New Zealand, New England rather, yep, town. Yep. We did have apothecaries, which was like boots with ice cream. Okay. And package stores where you buy liquor. So it was like an off-license, but we're calling it a package store. Oh, right. Okay. Mm. Now, when I say no one locked their doors, that is not entirely true. No locals did. Every Friday, we were regularly invaded by the weekenders, also known as New Yorkers. These city slickers would arrive in their posh cars and their fat wallets. They bought some of the most beautiful properties in our quaint town, including the large property at the end of our dead-end road. Our New York neighbours were actually a very sweet older couple. I was ten. They seemed incredibly old, but they might just have been in their their fifties. I mean, imagine imagine being that old. How embarrassing. Their house was a beautiful large property with a pool, 30 acres of land, to give an idea, that's the size of Dartmoor Zoological Park. And like a zoo, this property had a menagerie of animals, including a large pond, Ducks, swans, snapping turtles, a park-like enclosure with donkeys, llamas and sheep, an aviary, peacocks and peahens and a rabbit run. 
The couple did allow us to come up and see the animals whenever we wanted and encouraged us to fish in their pond. The donkeys were very friendly, the llamas spat regularly, the peacocks screamed like terrorised babies, whatever they sound yeah. like, and the white rabbit was quite shy and rather fat. But it was quite idyllic having all these animals just next door. Now, the majority of the 30 acres were woods. My brother and friends would regularly play in the woods. And in true friendly neighbour style, there were no fences or boundaries between properties. And all the kids on the dead-end road would regularly pass from one property to the next to access the woods, where we would play all day. This lack of fences and boundaries was also true for neighbourhood dogs. The Thursday night, our local neighbour, we'll call him Mr B, came to our door with a package wrapped in a towel. He was visibly shaken and slowly unwrapped the edge of the towel to reveal the long, unmoving, no longer snow-white ears of the weekender's rabbit. The rabbit was encrusted with dirt, completely unmoving and definitely dead. Mr. B, I should have warned you, there's a dead animal. Okay, is there a dead animal? animal? Yes, there is. It's the rabbit. Mr. B asked us if we knew whose rabbit it was, as his dog we'll call her Lassie, had brought it home that evening, it being another century and another continent, <laughs> yeah, I, and the dog would almost okay. certainly be dead. Yeah. The rabbit was disgusting, and this was so unlike Lassie. She had been a genial soul, and we had never known her hurt, let alone kill another animal. On close inspection, there were no puncture wounds or tears to the fur. My dad and Mr. B hatched a plan. Lassie had probably only scared the rabbit to death, we decided, and she'd just brought it back to the house as a trophy. Well, Dad and Mr. B set to work to clean up the rabbit. They washed off all the mud and dirt with warm water in the kitchen sink, and once the huge bunny was then reduced to a soaking bundle of white, wet fur, I was sent to the bedroom to get a hairdryer. Once the rabbit was fully <laughs> quaffed, Crimped and preened, large as life. Well, not life. It's no, still, still dead. Very much not life. <laughs> but back in a huge-looking, it just looked like a huge snow-white sleeping rabbit. Now, and Dad and Mr. B crept back to the weekender's house, and the rabbit was safely placed back in the hutch with the look of being peacefully asleep. However, the following week, the caretaker, Bob, who fed and cared the animals, stopped by. He would regularly allow us to follow him around and ride the mower around the grounds, lovely man. And it's for this part of the story that we need forgiveness, because when Bob arrived at the door, my brother and I were the only two people home. He asked for my parents, but when we explained that they were not home, he asked us if we'd seen the New Yorker's rabbit in the last week. We both shook our heads and tried to look as innocent as possible and unknowing of the terrible demise of the once glutinous rabbit. Bob explained that the rabbit had died, which we knew and that he had buried it the previous week, which oh. we had not known. Oh. <laughs> Imagine how hard it was for my brother and I to disguise our shock at this news. Lassie had not killed the rabbit, she'd just dug it up. Bob was so confused to find the pristine, beautifully fluffed rabbit back in the hatch. What's it doing there? How did it get to look like this? He'd already cleaned the, the hutch out to prepare for a new rabbit to be rehomed. So to the collective, I seek forgiveness, not from the weekenders, who, although they were very nice, were driving up property prices in the area, making it harder for locals <laughs> right. to buy. Wow. Class war. Yeah. But from Bob, who was terribly confused by this pristine <laughs> rabbit. From what I know, no one told the owners, as they knew the rabbit was dead in the first place. <laughs> 
I also see forgiveness from Lassie, who's been blamed for the entire thing and I'm sure had been left without treats for days. Thank you in advance for any forgiveness you can bestow. Shocking. Tell me everything is fine in the end, apart from the rabbit, but maybe the rabbit just died in a natural death. Mm, yeah, it, it was full of twists and turns, this story. Yes. There re- it really was, and the, and the plot twist at the end was really fantastic and rather compelling. However, I do think, Philippa, you probably should have just come clean to Bob and just said, like, look, this is what happened. I'm sure Bob would have been really understanding Bob was about confused. it. Because he, he was confused. confused. He was confused, and he had to bury the rabbit again, and that would have been really annoying. <laughs> Uh, and so for that reason, not forgiving, I'm afraid, although I know you were ten. But it was an Easter mystery, how mystical. Yeah, they could have yeah, turned they could have said, contacted the local there priest and said, hey, do you want this story? Because you yes. can get a whole month's no, worth of sermons No, it has come to there. pass yes. that there is the rabbit uh, that I buried. Um, so, yes, I'm going to forgive because obviously, as, as Holly's pointed out, the twist at the end, fabulous stuff. Bob had already buried the rabbit and there it is in the hutch. Uh, why were you using a hairdryer? I didn't understand that bit. To, I mean, to, 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 dry, move, the to dry the fur, but then the fur, yes. we, we would look a bit weird. Also feels a little too much circle of life. Maybe the maybe the rabbit had been killed. Um, so probably all of those things coming to pass. But if you were dead, you'd like to be. Would I want to be her bride? Primped and preened? Well, yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> Just basically well, take a work. Welcome to my Thursdays. Um, so for that reason, I'm going to forgive. Okay, still to come on your Confessions podcast from your friends at Greatest Hits Radio. Another classic from the crypt. You probably think this confession's about you. Cliff's 1960s school day story. Sing us a song, you're the piano man. And next, it's Hillwalker with Running Up That Hill. Confess all. We won't tell anyone. Just the entire nation. Simon Mayo's Confessions. Uh, tonight comes from Hillwalker. This is a pseudonym, as you're about to find out. Though really, I think Hillwalker could have got away with it. Oh. Anyway. Father Simon, Sister Holly, Brother Matt. My confession dates over 40 years ago to the very early 80s, when I was a pupil at an all-boys school in London. The school was at the top of a hill, and every day hundreds of boys would walk up and in the afternoon descend the residential road containing the school's gate. About halfway up the hill lived two girls of my age who were friends, let's call them Sally and Jane, and who were driven every morning down the hill on the way to their school by Sally's mother in the family's green estate car. By the time we were about 16, the girls and I had met at various parties and discos. That was the way people met yeah. them the day, Holly. And so had taken to giving me a smile and occasionally we would wave at each other. This was very nice. Anyway, this happened as they passed me, and sometimes, if the timing was right, there'd be a wave in the evening as well, as Mm. Sally's mum returned with them in the car. These are the little things in school that you get very excited about. In the sixth form, we were allowed to leave the school premises, and on this day, I'd been out at lunchtime on my own and was returning along the main road. I was about to reach the corner where I would turn left and begin walking up the hill. But as I approached the corner, Sally's Sally's mum's green car passed me from behind, turned left and stopped at the bottom of the hill. Sally's mum ducked down in the driver's seat to look out of the passenger window, smiled at me, pointed at me and then jabbed her finger twice 
at the passenger wind, pointing it, pointing into the car. This was fantastic. This was an unexpected bonus. I opened the door. I got in. I reached back over my left shoulder to grab the seatbelt. I was a little bit nervous. I hadn't really much encountered girls' mums before. Uh-huh. So I, I was whittering a bit, and I strapped myself in. This is very, very kind, I said. It's not much of a hill. You know, I could walk it, but mm. I'm very grateful. And I was burbling as I snapped the, sne- the seatbelt in before looking ahead out of the windscreen. However, the car didn't move. And I turned to look at Sally's mum, who was looking at me, and she said, Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. I seemed to lose the power of speech. Uh, uh, I replied as the dawning embarrassment took hold. Who are you? She repeated. <laughs> well, I said, I'm pointing at the back. Sally and, and Jane, we wave at each other. You know, then, nice, I think. You don't recognise me from each morning? You... You just offered me a lift up the hill. I was offering a lift to my neighbour, she said, and pointed past me out of the passenger window and coming along the road and previously unnoticed by me was the archetypal old lady. I remember white hair, a shuffling walk, a big coat and her towing a loaded shopping basket on wheels. I lost all my concentration for a bit, so her name escapes me, but let's call her Mrs Smith. The passenger window was wound down possibly by me again I'd lost concentration so I've got no idea Sally's mum called out Mrs Smith would you like a lift up the hill you know like normal (laughs) Mrs Smith shuffled to the window ducked down and looked in oh no that's all right she said sounding like Terry Jones from Monty Python again a 1960s and 70s satirical TV show. <laughs> no, that's all right. You've already got someone in there. <laughs> Father Simon, I know the correct thing to have done would have been to have jumped out of the car, helped Mrs. Smith in, and then emigrated to Australia. <laughs> However, the sheer social awfulness of the situation, <coughs> excuse me, left me totally frozen. Mrs. Smith wandered off, and I was left there. This can't get any worse, I thought. And so said, well, you might as well give me a lift up the oh, hill. No. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. If you yeah. wouldn't mind, that would be really nice. Yeah, yeah, number yeah. 24. <laughs> hmm, replied Sally's mum and began driving. The journey was no more than 20 seconds, but seemed to last <laughs> forever. As we approached her house, I mumbled something about, thanks very much. But she carried on past her house and swung into the school's entrance, dropping me right at the gate. Thank you very much, I said, and got out. Anyway, although I still cringe about this, I'm okay, so on to forgiveness. I don't seek forgiveness from Sally's mum for a strange teenager leaping into her car and demanding that she give them a lift. It was an honest mistake, and I really thought that she knew me. After all, I, you know, we're there every day. A few weeks later, I was walking home from school when Jane, Sally and her mum stopped the car and offered me a lift again. I refused, but they insisted, and when I got in, they all justifiably burst out laughing. No, it's Mrs Smith. Mrs Smith! From whom I seek forgiveness. I hope she's still with us, but, you know, let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Unlikely. She was old in the early 80s. Um, I think it's unlikely. Anyway... But one warm day in the early 1980s, she unnecessarily pulled her shopping basket on wheels all the way up the hill because of a teenager being an idiot. I hope you can forgive me. Yours, thankfully, Hillwalker, who uses a pseudonym when really you think... Nice. Yeah, very good. When really you would think it's fine, just call you Brian or John or something. But anyway, still embarrassed about a teenage indiscretion. Maybe it finished off Mrs Smith, we'll never know. But anyway, Sister Holly... uh, 
I don't know. You're going to let this let this one yeah. go, surely? Well, the thing is, I was going to actually forgive you, Hill Walker. When this first started off, there is nothing worse, and we've all been there, where you wave at someone waves at you, you wave back. They're that's waving true. at someone behind yeah, you. Yeah. Oh, so awkward. And I was cringing. I thought, oh, that's an honest mistake. But the main problem here is the fact that you didn't get out the car when Mrs. Smith did actually arrive. I thought that was a bit poor. It's frozen She's with a, embarrassment. I know, but she was a little frail old lady going up a hill. She needed that lift. You didn't need that lift. And that's why I'm not forgiving. To be honest, Hill, Hill Walker, uh, if, because we know about these things, the old lady was probably like 40. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have yeah, absolutely no idea how old this person so old. was. Uh, brother from another guy. Well, I'm going to posit the case that maybe Mrs. Mrs. Smith was able to deal with the hill. She she oh she called out to her. Do you want a lift? No, I don't. I'm just going to carry on walking. So so given that uh, Mrs. Smith didn't want to get in, then then he's well within his rights to say, do you mind taking me up to the top of the hill? And I thought this was going to end with the fact that him and uh, uh, they were now married. Not her and the mum. The her and him and the Mrs. Sally, Smith. And, you know that would be wrong. <laughs> uh, him and him and the Sally and and Jane. I think that would be the, like, like the graduates. <laughs> well, no, no. Anyway, so yes, definitely forgiven. Um, yes, and, and and also as as Holly points out, we've all had the thing where someone waves at you, and you wave back, and it turns out it was on behind. So you know, all happened to us all before. Who are we to cast the first stone? Definitely forgiven. Simon Mayo's confessions. We won't tell anyone. What? Oh, sorry, sorry. I mean, we will tell everyone. Uh, today's <laughs> confession comes from Cliff. Cliff, thank you very much indeed. It begins unpromisingly. Uh, hire Simon, Matt, Nigel and Susan. <laughs> <laughs> and it came in last week. So oh, right. Cliff's okay. paying attention. Yeah. This dates back to 1963. Wow. I was in my second year at Toxteth High School in Liverpool. Ah. So we're naming it because it's a long time ago. Okay. Every year we put on a Christmas carol service. It's a festive one. At the prestigious Philharmonic Hall in Liverpool. Mm. For reasons unbeknown to me, I was selected in this year to be included in the choir even though I couldn't sing. As in all grammar schools back in the day, we had to wear a uniform and the adherence to such was non-flexible. Inflexible. Therefore, to avoid loss, either unintentional or by force, i.e. theft, most of us had a name tag sewn into each item of clothing. This is very important. On the day of the concert, we had a rehearsal in the early afternoon. Mr. Rowlands, our music teacher, was quite an accomplished piano player, it has to be said, and obviously relished his position as music teacher in our then prestigious school. He would approach his piano with all the pomp and ceremony of a true virtuoso, stand in front of the piano, look at his assembled choir, glorying in his position, flick the tails of his suit over his stool and sit with a great flourish, befitting his importance. He would then lift the lid on his upright piano and with great aplomb play the first chord of the first carol to be sung. The chord was always pitch perfect and his obvious pleasure with the sound was there for all to see. After the rehearsal, we were dismissed to have lunch and reassemble at the pre-designated time for our concert proper. The rehearsal had passed off without error as we'd been practising for weeks and we were well drilled and all expecting a faultless performance. I don't know what got into me that day because I was a model child, but I nipped back into the concert hall and deposited my scarf into the upper lid of Mr. Rowland's upright piano, not giving a thought to the consequences. Concert time, and we, the choir, were all assembled. Mr. Rowland comes on stage. He walks to the centre, faces the audience, packed with all the teachers, (laughs) parents of the choir, 
parents of the non-choristers, school governors, mayors and so on. There was not an empty seat in the house. Mr Rowlands was puffed up and ready to go through his by now familiar to us routine. He theatrically bowed to his expectant audience, pirouetted 180 degrees, paused in front of the piano, theatrically flicked out his tails, sat with all the deference he assumed was his due, lifted the lid and played the first chord of the first carol. Plonk. <laughs> well, that wasn't a C major. He persisted. Plonk. No, still not a C major, nor any other chord known to man or beast. Not flustered in the least, the dapper Mr. Rowland stood up, lifted the lid of the piano, retrieved the offending article that had caused this new chord to be produced, and placed it on the floor next to his stool. He and the audience were only too aware of the giggling and amusement within the choir. And it was only at this moment that I realised my name was oh, sewn no. into my scarf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew I would be severely punished for my crime. Corporal punishment was liberally used in schools back then, and I knew I was going to get the cane the next day. My fear was palpable. I could not sing. All that was on my mind was the pain to come in the morning. The sweat was running down my back in rivers. I was sweating more than a Royal Marine on a spelling test. <laughs> Okay. I mean, really? I barely I barely slept all night. I knew only too well my impending fate and I could think of nothing to avoid it. Nothing. I even thought of running away from home, but knowing that was not practical, dismissed it and I was done for. I was terrified, Father Simon. So, it's assembly. The whole school is mustered in the assembly hall. The headmaster comes to the fore. Philip Hawksett, <laughs> he bawls. Get up here this instant. I'm puzzled. What has Hawksett done that's worse than me? As Hawksett reached the stage, the headmaster produced the offending scarf from behind his back. Oh, bother and gosh, I thought, as we said in yeah, 1964. Yeah. But I was still puzzled why he'd been called up. I hadn't told anyone what I'd done. I'd made sure no one had seen me. Hawksett and me didn't look alike, not even close. Why? Why? Hawksett! head began, if in your future life you choose to embark on a life of crime, try and not leave a signed confession of your crime at the scene. Everyone was puzzled, including me. The headmaster handed Hawksett the scarf and asked him to read out loud the name stitched so beautifully inside. P. Hawksett, he said. How has this happened? I thought. Dilemma time. Do I own up and take the lashes or leave Hawkeye to his fate and comfort him as best I can? To my eternal shame... I kept quiet. I felt the utmost guilt ever since, but on the upside, I didn't get six of the best and I wasn't shamed in front of the whole school. On the downside, well, I know I'm going to get slated on your show. This is the first time I've recounted this tale to anyone, ah. as I've been too ashamed to say. Many years later, I met up with P. Hawksett, Hawkeye as we called him. We hadn't seen each other for 35 years. I admitted to him what I had done. To my horror, he said, oh, I knew it was you, Cliff. I said, well, how do you know? He said, because I liked your scarf better than mine and I burnt a hole in mine smoking. <laughs> Number six. So I swapped it with yours. I couldn't say anything because that would have meant me admitting to theft. So yeah. I decided to take my lumps. Karma is what I call it. Anyway, I was relieved but still racked with guilt. I'm only seeking forgiveness from Hawkeye as I know I don't deserve nor expect forgiveness from anyone else. Love your show, by the way. Good. Says Cliff. Yeah. As though that's going to carry any favour at all with Sister Holly. Well, Christmas carol concerts are a big deal. They're a big event in the music calendar, really, for schools. And why you put your scarf inside the piano 
I don't really understand why you did that. I don't think he does either. That was all... It was never going to end well, really. Uh, I like the fact that the music teacher was called Mr. Rollins, and there's literally Roland pianos, yeah. Uh, But I just thought that (laughs) was funny. Like, Roland keyboards exist. Uh, So I thought that was great. Uh, But no, even with that, though, I just feel really sorry for Philip in all this, who managed to get the cane because of your scarf. It was very complicated at the end, but I still am not forgiving at all, because why would you put a scarf on a piano? That's just... Disrespectful to a piano. Also, he had stolen. He'd stolen the scarf. Stolen scarf. Because he, he burnt his own one with his yeah. fag. Well, is that not the root of this confession? Is the karma that came back onto your man Hawkeye because he'd stolen the scarf? Let's not forget that he'd stolen the scarf and smoked and uh, burnt a hole in it, and uh, and that's why uh, Cliff ended up with with the different scarf. And so uh, yeah, the karma came round. And also, I would make the point, isn't it, uh, uh, Mister Rowlands? Are you supposed to check your piano? Piano. You're supposed to check your no, equipment you before you Who go out there. That? You say, are all the keys there? <laughs> yes, they are. All black and white. Good. Uh, <laughs> are there any scarves? Inside. Are there any scarves <laughs> inside? No, there aren't. Everything's fine. So it was all Mr. Rowland's fault. Definitely forgiven. See, I would have thought a violinist would always just sort of have a look inside. Yeah, you definitely check. Would you, no, would you, I don't you, think anyone does that. You've, you've done orchestras. Uh-huh. Everyone checks I the I bet a tuba harp. player blows in definitely. his tuba before, or her definitely. tuba before. Not, yes. So if you're doing a concert, obviously you practice the piano yeah. before yes. the actual concert, which yes. is what he did. Yeah. But then once the concert begins, you can't just like, oh, let's me, let me test this out a bit because the audience is there. So you can't, what, what, by that point, it needs in, to be ready. You would go out with your tuba stroke xylophone. No, but he'd already piano. tested it, you know, an hour yeah. prior. Just, gone, just make sure it's all fine. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's fine, I've checked it. Anyway, just remember, never let your karma run over your dogma. <laughs> Correct, yes. Pulling up a squeaky trap door on the crypt just now. Hark. <laughs> you need to add in an Yes, yep, yep. Otherwise I'll just... You <laughs> <laughs> sound insane. Uh, for another classic from the archives, Jenny very kindly sent us this. Hello, Simon, Matt, Holly, Katie, Susie, Nigel. Yeah. Does the podcast have its own bell? It has exactly yes. the same bell. Okay, let's say it's another It's a different bell altogether. <laughs> Thank you so much for bringing back the podcast. It's once again the hilarious highlight of the weekend. If the team still have the recording, the confession that I would love to hear again is the one from a naughty student nurse who tries sneaking a fella into the halls. (laughs) I just remember howling with laughter, so it would be good to hear it again. Jenny Oaks, we've spliced this back together from a quarter-inch tape this very morning. This is the naughty nurse's tale, which we called at the time. You probably think this confession is about you. Something to confess. Simon Mayo's Confessions. Tonight's tale comes from uh, someone who signed the naughty nurse. Today's confession from the naughty nurse. Simon and the collecting, <laughs> collective forgivers of sin. I know, that that's her choice. That's how she wishes to be known. Okay. okay. Uh, firstly, I would like to point out that the heinous sin that I'm uh, begging forgiveness for took place in the late 80s, uh, when times were different, as Matt likes to say. Yeah, they were. It yeah, took place on the glorious island of Jersey when I was a student nurse. The nurse training undertaken at Jersey School of Nursing was very strict. Most of us lived in the nurse's home, commonly known as the Nun's Retreat, a tedious building attached to the hospital. Boys weren't allowed in our rooms, but they were allowed to visit us in the communal living room. But they had to be out by 9pm. 9pm sharp, 
The main doors were locked, and if we were still out, we had to do the walk of shame through accident and emergency. Certain student nurses seemed to have more practice at this than others, mentioning no names. Phoebe Johnson and Mary Graham. The nurses' home was always a popular invite when any groups of boys came from out of town, whether it be sports teams, a golf tour, but especially when any members of the armed forces descended on Jersey. This particular balmy summer evening, it was the turn of the British Army, who set up a big mash tent, as it was known. After getting ourselves ready for a night out, a group of us nurses wandered up to the aforementioned mash tent to where a not-so-gracious party appeared to be in full swing. After making our way to the bar and starting to enjoy the ambience of the evening, my eyes and those of a tall, rugged, well-built redhead, which I have always had a penchant for, locked across the crowded mash tent. It was not long before we had made our way into each other's company and were enjoying the evening together. Soon after ten, the drinks reception was ending and the tall, rugged redhead asked if he could walk me home. We appeared to be enjoying each other's company, so I agreed. <laughs> on, on the walk back, I declined the offer of going for a drink as I was working the next day. I was thinking, well, this could be the man of my dreams, as one does when you're in your mid-twenties, or at least I did, until he started becoming, well, to put it mildly, a bit of an idiot. Oh, no. What a surprise. <laughs> He'd almost arrived at the nurse's home when he blatantly invited himself in for a cup of coffee. I explained that, one, I didn't drink coffee. Two, by this time I thought he was such a muppet that even if he was the last man on earth, I didn't want to spend any more time in his company, thank you very much. And three, I explained that members of the opposite sex could not gain entrance to the nurse's home after 9pm. He replied to me very smugly and very arrogantly, I am in the SAS, I'll have you know. <laughs> and I am specially trained in the art oh, are you? of entering buildings. Oh, well, there you go. Okay, I thought, well, oh, this idiot no. is... This idiot is not being told any of the secret ways in, so I pointed to the window of my room on the seventh floor and said, that's my room, if you can find your way in, I'll make you a coffee. After which, I walked away with a casual glance over my shoulder and a nice meeting you night then, and proceeded to do the walk of shame up the ramp towards A&E. As I got about halfway up the ramp, I heard a loud crash and a bang and a string of expletives, which I ignored and just carried on up the ramp, giggling away to myself. I returned to my room and enjoyed a reasonably early night before my early shift with the fearsome sister the next morning. Upon arriving in the ward the next day, I was aware of a sense of unsettlement, if that's a word. This was compounded by one of the night shift students, a friend of mine, just staring at me. As we got to the male orthopedic bay, the sister said words to the effect of we don't know who the patient in seabed is. All we know is in the army and he fell down the drop by the porter's cabin whilst trying to follow a student nurse into the hospital. <laughs> She seemed to scan the room with those eyes coming to rest on each of the four students. She then said he must be very important because some very important army men are coming to pick him up very shortly. And at that moment, I watched in horror as about seven senior-ranking army officers walked into the ward. And the hunky redhead, still in his hospital gown, was wheeled past the office by army officers, never to be seen of or heard of again. He didn't look like the possible man of my dreams. Now he was all bandaged up and looked like he was from one of the carry-on movies, to be perfectly honest. As 
We left the office. My friend on nights looked at me, shaking her head. She said, I knew that was you. As soon as we were told, it was, he was following a student nurse. So the forgiveness has to be for A, the nurses on duty that night who had to patch him up and look after him. Yes, I was that student nurse. My apologies. The senior members of the British Army and other members of the Army on Jersey at the time, I hope I didn't ruin your plans. And lastly, the unfortunate soldier, who, if he was a member of the SAS, seemed to have forgotten the basics. I hope his injuries healed quickly, and I hope this incident did not put his career in jeopardy, <laughs> even though he had turned into a complete <laughs> idiot. Um, much to most of my colleagues' belief, I did manage to make it through my training and have had, and I'm still enjoying, an excellent and varied career as a registered nurse. Well, uh, the naughty nurse has got a uh, smart speaker. We'll check in on the verdict of Sister Susie from the pub. First of all, what do you say to the naughty nurse? Uh, I think that was excellent, naughty nurse. I think that, you know, he was just being a bit of an idiot, really. Yes. And I think you um, just... Got rid of him very successfully. Um, hopefully he wasn't too injured, but, you know, for that, just him being a bit of an idiot, I'm going to forgive. I'm well, on your side. OK, brother Matthew, what do you say to the naughty nurse? Well, I, I want to know whether has that line ever worked? I'm in the SAS, my dear, you know. Oh, yes, I'd like to come up for a coffee. I, I'm not sure what the entry requirements are for the SAS, but my guess is if you can't get up the top of a porter cabin, you're not getting in. So, uh, <laughs> unlucky sunshine. Um, I'm definitely forgiving naughty nurse, definitely. Unlucky sunshine is the line, I think. The people's <laughs> verdict, please, 6105. Simon Mayo's confessions. We won't tell anyone. What? Oh, sorry, sorry. I mean, we will tell everyone. A little bit of music. Yes, uh, are we going to be able to uh, afford that? I don't think, I don't no. think we will. Stand no. by me. Yeah, of, of course, uh, of course. Extra benefit. That one's from uh, the loft days. I can, I can always tell the ones when the I acoustic. was in the loft. Yeah, so yeah, So Susie's yeah. in the pub and you're in yeah, the loft I'm and we're just loft. coming out the back of COVID. Correct, yeah. Uh, something yeah. like that. Susie is going to be back on the show, by the yes. way. Yes. She, she uh, her, you remember she left to have a baby, she was on mm -hmm. maternity leave, uh -huh. and now uh, baby Ted is uh, 18 years old. Yes, going to college. So I left school and is thinking of getting married and so Susie thought it's time it's now time to return it's time I came back if you have a request for a classic confession you'd like to hear again or indeed maybe you've got a confession of your own and I think clearly from the post bag you do when mm. I say post bag I mean you know e-post bag is that what it's called? Email, yeah. <laughs> Confessions at greatestitsradio.co.uk or just drop it in at reception. Or if you see Holly walking down the street, just yes. hand it over in an envelope. Wrapping up this week's service is Brother Matt with our secret code phrase. Which this week is, sounds like Bertrand Russell. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like Bertrand Russell. Okay, so if you've listened this far... I like the way you did it, like a mystery voice. <laughs> yes. Uh, on Twitter... That was like, what's my line, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, very good. Simon Mayo, uh, that's where I am on Twitter. Uh, Mr. Simon Mayo on threads. I'm also on Blue Sky. Yes, you, you, <laughs> you mention it every week. No one's there. You have a handful. <laughs> Howling into the void of Blue Sky. <laughs> anyway, what's the code phrase again? Uh, sounds like Bertrand Russell. Don't forget to follow, like and subscribe. Tell everyone that you know. Knock on their doors. And then when they open the door, run away. Mm. When you've said, did you know Simon Moe's Confessions podcast is back? Anyway, until next time, this is Sister Holly. Ta-ta for now. This is Brother Matt. Goodbye. That sounded final. It did, didn't it? Yeah. I'm Simon. Thank you for listening. Bless you all. Simon Mayo's Confessions. Want to confess? 
Simon Mayo would love to hear your story. He may even keep it to himself. He definitely won't keep it to himself. Send gory details, please, to confessions at greatesthitsradio.co.uk.